I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians 1, verse, uh, verse 12. We're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so we're picking it up at verse 12 here. I imagine that there's probably at least some here who have, like me, read J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, series, the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, those of you who haven't read it, probably more of you have, are familiar with it through the movie adaptation, which shocked me when I looked it up this week. It came out 20 years ago, 2001 to 2003, those movies were released. Uh, amazingly long time, but many of you will be familiar with that. Perhaps there are some of you who have been living under a rock and have never heard of The, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Lord of the Rings is a story that Tolkien tells, a fantasy epic. Uh, the title of the, the, the books, The Lord of the Rings, points us to the, the story's main antagonist, the, the Dark Lord Sauron. He, in an earlier age, crafted one ring that would, uh, that would rule over the rings of power that had been uh, made for men and elves and dwarves with the goal of conquering all of Middle-earth. And so uh, the, the, books are, the, 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 the books are long and the stories have lots of little bunny trails off the side, twists and turns, many adventures, hundreds and hundreds of pages. But at the very center of the story is just one thing. Uh, the mission of the fellowship of the ring, the goal of those who are on the side of good is the destruction of this one ring. And that, that is the center of the story. That is the one most important thing to stop Sauron from conquering Middle-earth, from de defeating it, to stop his purposes. That is the central thing, the destruction of the one ring that shapes everything else. Every, every part of the story. This morning, we move on from the preliminary matters at the beginning of the letter to the Philippians and move into the body of the letter itself. And what we will see this morning very clearly is that the Apostle Paul has his eyes fixed on one thing. The one thing that is most important. And that one thing is the advance of the Gospel. That one thing is the pro proclamation of Jesus. That one thing shapes the rest of his story. It, it shapes everything. It shapes his life. That is the one important thing at the very center. Now, over the three weeks that we have been in Philippians, we have looked at a number of things. First, we looked at, at Paul's greeting to the Philippians. And we saw that even in that greeting, uh, it's not just a throwaway, hey, Good to you know, finally write to you in Philippi. But even there in those opening words, Paul gives hints of some of the major themes that he will be addressing, some of the issues going on in this church. And he also points to, in a kernel form, the Gospel. He says, he changes the common greeting to grace to you and peace. That is, through the grace of Christ, we have peace with God. He, he's already gotten to the Gospel in the very opening words. Second, we looked at Paul's two-part prayer report. That is, he moves on from his greeting to tell the Philippians uh, about his prayers. And 
He says first, the first week we looked at the first part of his prayer report where he speaks of his thanksgiving, his gratitude to God, how he, he thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. He expresses his gratitude for what God has done in them, what God is doing, and what God will bring to completion in them. He shares his great joy that they are in Christ with him, that they are in this gospel ministry with him, both supporting him through a financial gift that they've sent to him, but also through the proclamation of Christ where they are in Philippi. The second part of his prayer report, Paul shares with them his intercession, how he's praying for them, what he's wanting for them. We looked at this last week. And he prays that they would grow in Christ, that they would grow as disciples, right? That their love would abound more and more in knowledge and insight, that they would be able to discern what is best, what really matters, that they would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And he prays all of this, that they would grow in Christ, that they would grow in these ways as disciples of Christ through Christ through the power of Christ, through the Gospel. We don't produce growth in our Christian lives by just trying harder. It is the power of Christ through His Spirit in us. It is in light of the Gospel, what Christ has done, that we are declared right already. So through Christ, that they are to grow for the glory of God. That is the goal. That God would be glorified. That our growth, that our progress as disciples of Jesus is never about, hey, look at me. No, every time you notice that God has done something, that He's changing you, that you're growing, the goal is to say, I praise you, God. I worship you. Glory to you. That's what Paul's praying for them. Now we move on from these preliminary matters. I want you to remember that Paul here is writing to a church that he planted. Uh, about 12 years earlier, this is the first church planted in Europe. And he, I want you to remember this, that this church is experiencing two things that Paul will address in this letter. One, they're external, experiencing external uh, opposition. Some suffering is part of their story at this point. And they're likely discouraged by that. Secondly, they are also experiencing some internal tension. Within the community of faith, not all is well. And the third thing I want you to remember before we turn to the text is that Paul is writing this from a prison cell, that Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. And just before I read the text, I want to take a moment just to help us get into the shoes or the sandals, if you will, of the Philippians. Paul planted this church. Paul has visited this church numerous times over the years. Paul knows them personally. They know him, at least many of them. Think of Lydia, the seller of people, purple cloth, uh, the Philippian uh, jailer in his household. Uh, there's a deep relationship and love. We've already seen uh, their affection for one another earlier. But now it has been years, probably about four years since they have seen one another face to face. Uh, they have heard news that Paul is in prison, that he is under arrest. But but news doesn't travel like it used to. They actually sent Epaphras, one of their members, to find Paul to give him a gift. We will read about that later on. Paul will thank them for their gift that he has sent to him. And they've heard that Epaphras, who they sent, was sick, that he almost died. Paul will reference that later on in chapter 2. But now Epaphras has returned with Paul's letter, and so they finally have word from Paul, this dear apostle who planted their church, who loves them, whom they love. But there is so much that they don't know. So much that they are wondering. They're concerned for Him. I want you to think for a moment. 
We, we live in a world where this is hard to actually wrap our minds around. We, we, have, we have the 10 o'clock news, we have newspapers, but more, more than that, we have, we have the internet. We can Google anything, anytime, and, and find this information. But this was in a world where you wrote a letter and it took months to deliver and months for news to come back. You didn't know. And so you lived with this sense of not knowing for extended periods of time. So they don't know what's going on with Paul. They know he was arrested, but what has happened? Has he been has he, at his trial? Has he been martyred? Where, what's going on? And so Epaphras comes back with this letter, and they would be eager to hear about Paul, what's going on in his life. And as they start reading the first 11 verses, Paul's not telling them what's going on in his life. It's all about them, what he's praying for them. And so they're eagerly waiting. And so here at verse 12, as we turn to our text, Paul will uh, seek to relieve their anxiety by speaking briefly He will turn it into a different focus, but speaking briefly about his situation, he is still in chains, still facing an uncertain future. But something else is true. The gospel continues to advance. We will see that one thing that matters most to Paul, that this one thing is most important. It is the one thing upon which Paul's eyes are fixed. If you have your Bibles, follow along as I read verses 12 to 18a. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I want to, during our time together, I want to ask four questions with you. First question, why does Paul rejoice? Second, how is the gospel advancing? Third, what is the hitch in Paul's experience? And fourth, how does Paul respond? Why does Paul rejoice? How is the gospel advancing? What is the hitch in Paul's experience? And how does Paul respond? Question one, why does Paul rejoice? It's really not difficult at all to answer this question. Uh, we, we find the answer spelled out as clear as it could be in the last part of our text this morning. I'll read it again, uh, mostly way through verse 18. Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul rejoices because Christ is being proclaimed. Paul rejoices because the gospel is being spread. It is being shared. The good news of Jesus is being made known. The good news is spreading. And for that, Paul rejoices. The the good news, of course, some of you, if you are not a believer, you don't know what the good news, what is this good news? Let me tell you, the good news is this. That though all of us as human beings are lost because of sin, that all of us have rebelled against God, our Creator, We have thumbed our noses at Him. We've gone our own way. And we all stand under His judgment. Just judgment. We deserve only His wrath. But God in His love for us 
God in His great love for us through the person of His Son became a human being, a man, and He came and He lived on this earth and He obeyed the Father perfectly. He submitted in everything. He lived a perfectly righteous life and yet He was arrested. He was flogged. He was convicted. He was nailed to a cross and He suffered an incredibly agonizing death. But more than that, as He hung on the cross, all of our sin, the sins of the world were placed Upon his shoulders. And in Mark's gospel, the Father turns away, and Jesus experiences the judgment, the abandonment that you and I deserve. He bore it all, he drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs, so that for every person, every one of us who puts our faith in Jesus, puts our hope in Jesus, who comes to Jesus with empty hands and says, Jesus, I can't clean myself up. I can't fix what's broken about me. I need your mercy. I need your grace. That Jesus forgives us. That we are washed. That we are cleansed. That we are forgiven. Not only that, but we, we receive credit for Christ's perfect life, His perfect obedience. We are clothed with His righteousness so the Father looks at us and sees only the perfection of His Son. We are adopted as daughters and sons. We are made new and alive. That's the good news proclaimed in Scripture. That is what is being proclaimed. And that is why Paul rejoices. He rejoices because Jesus is preached Paul knows. Paul knows that salvation is found in no other name. Paul knows that apart from Christ, apart from Christ, all are lost. All are under God's judgment. And he knows that the spread of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus is the one thing that matters most. It is the one most important thing. There's a passion for that one thing that shapes Paul's perspective, that shapes his life. So when we ask the question, why is Paul rejoicing? He is rejoicing because the one thing that is most important is happening. The gospel is advancing. That leads us to the second question. How is the gospel advancing? I want you to remember, remember that Paul is in chains in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. Paul is chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier as he writes this letter. I want you to think with me for a moment. This is not how Paul had envisioned things. Uh, Paul was the great missionary to the Gentiles for years and years. He had traveled throughout the Mediterranean world. He traveled throughout the Roman world, through much of what is today Turkey, through uh, the nation of Greece, city after city after city, proclaiming Christ, uh, planting churches, discipling, nurturing Christians, seeing the gospel uh, birth new, new churches, See people come to life to put their faith in Jesus and find hope in Him. He, he is back and forth between Palestine a few times. 
And at some point, he began dreaming about a mission further west to Spain. He was going to go there, but on the way, he was going to stop in Rome. That was his goal. That was his, his hope, his plan. And yet he arrived at Rome differently than he expected. He arrived at Rome in chains, under arrest, waiting to see Caesar. And so here he is, stuck, imprisoned, month after month after month. One year goes by, now a second, and still he awaits trial before Caesar with an unknown future ahead of him. Who of us would blame Paul if he was becoming frustrated, if he was becoming impatient, if he was feeling defeated, derailed? If that is not the case, look with me. At the first way the gospel is advancing, verses 12 and 13. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. The word that is translated in the NIV, palace guard, literally is the word praetorium. Praetorium was a word used for the, the group of soldiers who were a Caesar's bodyguard, those who were right around Caesar, in the, the palace of Caesar, if you will. These were, uh, these were Caesar's bodyguards. They were in charge with the, of the custody of imperial prisoners, such as Paul. And so Paul here, in the very heart of the empire, is chained to a member of the praetorium constantly for two years. Every four hours, that soldier would change shifts, and another soldier would be chained to him. Shift after shift after shift, Paul is exposed to, or this soldier is exposed to Paul. And Paul sees the window, he sees the open door, and he walks through it. He begins to proclaim Christ to these men. He begins to speak of the hope that he has in Christ. Think of it, over the course of two years, how many different men would that be? Many of them over and over and over again, but probably some rotation of of into, the, into the Praetorium Guard happened as well. He, he has the opportunity to preach, to speak, to share about Christ with those who are closely surrounding the Emperor of Rome in the very heart of the empire. But there's more. Look at verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Who's the everyone else? Well, probably those involved in the imperial affairs in the, in the palace. Maybe some of those who are preparing and delivering food to Paul and the soldiers. Others who are involved in that life at, uh, around Caesar. Everyone else. And what does he say? Here's what he says. They have all come to know that he is in chains, not for committing a crime, not for political reasons, but because of Christ, because he is in Christ, because he is a disciple of Jesus. And it's not just that all these Romans know about Paul and why he is in chains. Some of them actually have repented and believed. Some of them have become part of the church in Rome. Listen to what Paul says at the end of Philippians as he, he signs off the letter. He says, he says this, All God's people here, that is, in Rome, send you greetings especially those who belong to Caesar's household. 
He's under arrest. He is hindered from going and proclaiming the gospel like he wants to, from traveling and planting churches as he has for years and years. And yet, he sees that God is using even this trial to advance the gospel. That members of Caesar's household, at the very heart of the empire, have come to faith in Jesus. The second way in which the gospel is advancing, look with me at verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Not only has Paul been able to impact the non-believers around him directly, but his being in chains has impacted the church in Rome. It has impacted the Christian community. Those to whom he wrote our book of Romans, this letter to the Romans, They have been filled with a newfound boldness. Not only is Paul proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Christ while he's in chains, but the church in Rome is proclaiming the gospel in Rome, in the very heart of the empire, with boldness, without fear. This extraordinary boldness to witness to Christ is really amazing considering the historical situation. It's the early 60s, probably around 62 A.D., as Paul writes our letter of Philippians. Nero is the emperor, and his madness is peaking. The church is beginning to fall under suspicion. Within two years, Nero will launch his pogrom against Christians, massacring hundreds. And yet, Paul being imprisoned, Paul's boldness in proclaiming the gospel... In Christ, the church is emboldened. And God uses Paul's imprisonment to give them courage, to embolden them. Their boldness isn't in Paul being in chains. God used Paul being in chains to embolden them in Christ. It's their faith in Christ, their hope in Christ that emboldens them and they bear witness without fear in the very heart of the the empire. Paul's imprisonment has inspired the church to newfound boldness, even as storms, storm clouds gather on the horizon. It brings us to our third question. What is the hitch in Paul's experience? If we stopped reading at verse 14, we could have concluded that despite Paul being in jail, all was really quite good. That all was well. The gospel is advancing. Paul is rejoicing. But there is this hitch. Something is off. I want you to listen again as I begin reading at verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Despite all the good, there is something that is not right. Gordon Fee writes this, Some who have been emboldened by his imprisonment have become more aggressive in their evangelism precisely because they hope to add to Paul's afflictions. There are two kinds of evangelism going on in Rome through the church, that is apart from what God is doing through Paul in prison. Some are bearing witness to Christ. Some are evangelizing out of goodwill, out of love for Christ, out of love for the lost around them. But some... Others are evangelizing out of envy, out of a sense of rivalry, out of selfish ambition. 
Uh, our challenge is to determine who exactly are these people, what kind of people are they, what, what do we know about them. And I, I want to say two things that I think we can say with great confidence. We know that these are members of the church in Rome. These are actually believers in Christ. And I'll, I'll say more about that in a minute. Second, we can say that they are not related, not directly related at least, to other opponents that Paul will speak about in this letter. How do we know this? Well, we know this because when Paul confronts opponents, he very clearly identifies them as enemies of the gospel. Uh, his tone is radically different. Uh, remember last week I, I quoted from Philippians 3, I think it was last week, Philippians 3, 2. Paul warns the Philippians about, uh, he doesn't use this term, but the Judaizers. The Judaizers, if you're not familiar, were Jewish Christians who believed that you needed to um, you needed to not only put your faith in Jesus, but you also needed to kind of become Jewish. You needed to follow those Jewish identity markers, which included circumcision. And, and so Paul here says this, very different tone. He will say, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He pulls no punches. In, in fact, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul speaks of those who are preaching another gospel. That is, uh, the problem of the Judaizers is a significant problem for the church in Galatia, and he, he will pull no punches there. He says uh, those to, to those who are preaching another gospel in Galatia, another gospel, that is, that you need Jesus plus Jewish boundary markers, you, you need to Jesus plus circumcision, Paul writes this, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, that is, our salvation is through faith in Christ alone, let them be under God's curse. This is how Paul speaks of those who are enemies of the cross. He doesn't speak that way here. His tone is radically different. He does not condemn this group of people. He does not take issue with their proclamation of the gospel. It would seem that they are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. The issue isn't what they're proclaiming. The issue is their sinful motives. That they are proclaiming because of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. Now, what exactly is going on? I want to offer one best guess that Gordon Fee offers us. Let's just remember together that Paul didn't plant this church. That until he was brought here in chains, he had never been to Rome. And so, Paul doesn't have a personal relationship with these believers. He wrote them, the letter to the, to the Romans, but he doesn't know them. And perhaps he has encountered, met some of them, depending on the amount of freedom he had while incarcerated. If you're familiar with the letter that Paul writes to the Romans, I want you to just draw your attention to two things, or one thing, two sides of the coin that Paul tries to do. The church in Rome was a church comprised of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And that inevitably brought certain tensions, certain matters to the fore that had to be dealt with. And some of those are around Jewish boundary markers. A Jewish people had for their whole life for centuries and centuries observed certain f food habits, eating habits, food restrictions. They had practiced circumcision. Now Paul wants to contend for the Jewish Christians that those things that they have used uh, in their relationship with God, no longer count as far as relating them to God. That's not, his expectation is not that Jewish boys won't be circumcised. He just says that, that that's not a spiritual thing anymore. He, he doesn't expect that they all start 
throwing all their food laws out. He's just simply saying those things are not, they're not important when it comes to being right with God. We are right with God through faith in Christ. And so that's part of what he does in the letter uh, to the Romans. And something else he does is he speaks to the Gentile Christians and he calls them to be understanding and sensitive to the reality that their Jewish brothers and sisters have grown up their whole lives with these things and that they should be mindful of that. So for example, if you were a Jew and had spent your whole life not eating pork, even as you concede that food laws are not they don't play a role in salvation in your relationship with God, you're, you're most likely not going to go to the local Roman Wendy's and order a Baconator. It's just not going to happen. And, and similarly, Gentile believers should, out of understanding and sensitivity, not bring a platter of Baconators to the church potluck. This is what Paul's calling them to, to sacrifice their own rights out of love for one another. So though he will say the Torah, the, these, these boundary markers are no longer, they don't play a role in salvation. And yet he calls the Gentiles, on the other hand, to, to be gracious and understanding and sensitive. Now imagine that Paul arrives in Rome and he finds, or the situation is, that not everyone appreciated his approach. Again, they don't know him personally. Some others have served in positions of leadership and influence. And now Paul is there. And, and maybe Paul has begun over these two years, even in prison, begun to influence the church. And, and they don't like that. They don't like the direction that Paul is, is moving things. And so out of this sense of rivalry, out of envy for the, the, maybe the attention he gets, out of selfish ambition, wanting to be the leaders in his place. They proclaim Christ, but with a heart motives that are wrong. Now that, that's a guess. But what I want to contend is that these people who are trying to stir up trouble for Paul are in fact believers. He does not take exception with their proclamation of the gospel. And though here he doesn't speak to their motives he certainly will in this text. Which leads us to our fourth question, how does Paul respond? The beginning of our exploration this morning, I read from verse 18. This time I want to read right from the beginning of verse 18. Paul says, in response to all that he has shared, he says this, but what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. One thing matters. One thing is the one most important thing, and that is that Jesus is preached. That the Gospel is announced. Yes, some are trying to stir up trouble for Him, but even with sinful motives, they are proclaiming Christ. And it's not that He gives them a free pass. He will yet call this church, these brothers and sisters, each one of them, including those who are gunning for Him in some way. He will call them all to have the mind of Christ in their relationships with one another. He will write these words, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. He's getting there. He's getting there. But right now, the one thing that 
he wants to hold up before the Philippians the one thing that is most important. He, he will not be sidetracked. And whether the gospel is preached with wrong motives or out of goodwill, Paul rejoices because the gospel is being proclaimed, because Christ is being preached. That through faith in Christ, there is forgiveness, there is new life, there is hope. And remember this, Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to a church that is itself experiencing some suffering. They're experiencing some external opposition and they're suffering. And within their own body, there is this internal strife, some tension, something is going on. Not all is right in Philippi. And so in, in many ways, their situation mirrors perfectly what Paul is experiencing in Rome. And so Paul holds himself up as a model to them. Even in the face of suffering. Even in the presence of tensions within the Christian community. There is but one thing that should shape your lives. There is one thing that is to be at the center of our lives. One thing that is the one most important thing. And that is that Christ be preached in word and in, in deed. So let me ask some questions of us. What about you and me? Is the advance of the Gospel? Is this the one thing that shapes our lives? Is this the one thing that is at the very center of our lives? Individually? Corporately? Is this the one thing for which we pour out our lives? Are we, are we women and men of prayer who daily come before the Lord and, and pray that He would save the lost all around us? Or is it too much of a bother to schedule that? And are we constantly, are we regularly, daily, moment by moment, are, are we as in, in our actions, are we looking for that opportunity to speak of Jesus to those around us who do not know Him? who do not have the hope that we have. If you take an honest look at your calendar and how you spend your time, does it, does it reflect the fact that making Jesus known is at the very heart, that it is shaping your life? When we look at our checkbooks, sorry, most of you, some of you won't know what a checkbook is. When you look at your online banking statement, does that reveal that there's one thing that is most important? I just want to encourage you. I think as we think about this, as we think about and look for and pray for open doors to speak of Christ, I want to encourage you that we would, we would rehearse what we can say that, that we would prepare even beforehand. How will we answer? Many of you know that I've coached at the junior high down the road for a number of years now. And a number of years ago, I, God led me to an answer. And that is my answer now whenever someone asks me, because I don't have kids in the school anymore. And I go and I, I give hours investing in kids and getting to know staff and a few parents along the way, less parents now during COVID. 
But when I'm asked, why do you do this? I say, because Jesus has loved me and Jesus wants me to love others. And so it's a joy to come. For that reason, I do this for Jesus. I don't want to weird you out, but that's why I do this. So I want to challenge all of you to think through how will you answer? What can you say? Because I know, I believe, brothers and sisters, that, that we all want to be bolder, that we all want to bear witness faithfully, and it's, it's hard. We, we, we live in a hard culture. Talking to a ministry colleague from a, another culture said, it is hard here in the West. It's hard soil. So how do we, how do we prepare ourselves in prayer that, that God, give me boldness, give me words. Do we, do we talk to one another and say, hey, how could I do this? Is this one thing, making Jesus known, the proclamation of the gospel, is this the one most important thing that shapes everything? It is for Paul. And can we, like Paul, even in suffering, even in chains, say what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel? Even if we don't see directly how, do we trust in God's goodness, in His sovereignty, in His promise that in all things He's working things together for the good of those who love Him? Can we say even in the face of internal difficulties when someone seeks to stir up trouble, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Is your life, is my life characterized by joy, rejoicing? Because we see the advance of the gospel. We see very clearly here. The Apostle Paul has his eyes fixed on one thing. The one thing that is most important. The one thing, the advance of the gospel. And that passion, that single-mindedness shapes his life. That single-minded passion shapes everything for him. May, by the grace of God, may that be true of you and me and us together. Amen.